started, my, my wife was very, very nervous when I began exploring psychedelics. And she kept saying, I'm afraid you're gonna leave me, I'm afraid you're gonna leave me. How right she was. Where he says, an addict is someone for whom spirituality is a necessity rather than a luxury. So do you see yourself as an addict today? I'm an addict, I'll always be an addict. Not a porn, just I'm an addict. You're not anything. You're not an escape artist, you're not an addict, you're not any of those things. What you are is someone who's choosing to follow a certain modality of liberation. Come across your content within the last few weeks, and it was like the perfect timing for like where I was at in life and the different, I just, a lot of chaos and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of madness and you somehow, if we believe in Ashkacha Pratis, slid into my algorithm. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure how to interpret that other than I'm supposed to pay attention. So I had a uh, interesting opening sure clip. For you? I'm just curious because it's really in the last two months that I'm doing it very um, uh, aggressively. Like I'm all in in the last two months. I was doing it kind of on the side. Now it's sometimes it'll consume my whole day. And... Being that I don't charge and I don't get paid, this is kind of the, the currency that I trade in, the currency of import. Right. So, so can you can you explain what you mean? Like when you say that it came to you at the right time, what is that? What did it do for you? And what do you mean by that? I know you're going to be asking me questions, but I was just hoping to sneak one in. I mean, I, I for I always have a trouble telling a story. Where do I start the story? Where, where, like, what part of the process do I have to start at? I can start when, when I'm 12. I can start when I'm uh, in the last two months. Uh, so for me, in the last year, I, I don't know, like, had physical health issues, anxiety health issues. Started school, uh, quit school, um, starting up school again, looking for work, looking for jobs, and in the midst of all that chaos, uh, one of one of my comforts is pornography. Um, and it's, I wouldn't say it's one of my comforts. It's, it's a go-to tool for many different reasons. Like you, you've described how it, you use it to, cause you, you need to get out of your mind. Like you need to stop feeling your feelings. You came to this awareness that I, that I'm doing, I like, I do not want to feel my feelings. And for me, I'm somebody who, I know I want nothing more than to feel my feelings, but it seems to be whatever I'm feeling is inappropriate or uh, is is just have less feelings mental. I'm a very emotional, very passionate, very open human being. And I, coming through this process of getting to the point where my like I'm okay with like who I am, like this, I, over the few weeks, this awareness, of like, I am okay, I will be okay, I'm okay, I will be okay. And I think your first, the first podcast I saw of yours was actually on ayahuasca with Omar Pinto. You have two Omar, Omars in your life, so Omar Pinto. Yes. Um, and, okay, it was titled AA and Ayahuasca, um, uh, The I Road to from, Recovery. Yeah, from Alcoholics Anonymous to, to Ayahuasca. ayahuasca. No, Omar shares his journey of 17 years over Right. steps and finding ayahuasca. And I've always, I've had this paradigm of I'm not an addict. I'm an escape artist because I don't have a vice of choice. For me, it's I'm aware of my desire to escape. And 
I've never like, oh, it's not porn. It's not weed. It's not alcohol. It's not TV. It's not Instagram. It's none of those things. It's an overall overarching desire to escape. And then I think through. How do you juxtapose that with feeling your feelings or wanting to feel your feelings? Because I, because um, when I, what I wrote down in response to what, to what, to you not wanting to feel your feelings, I want to feel my feelings, and my thoughts are the things that I have to kind of escape from. And porn and sex is the thing that gets my mind to not to turn off, like the rational part of my brain to turn off. Right. And yeah, one way I described it is that porn quieted the noise for me. It just felt like it was so busy up here, and porn or other variations of it, strip clubs, etc just quieted all the noise. I felt like right. I didn't think about one thing. Yeah, and We're and I, I've gotten to this point where I, I many times, right, like whether as a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old sneaking watching porn on my computer and then my dad coming to me and me knowing what the conversation was going to be before he told me, like I knew what I got caught doing before I ever got caught doing it, like because like, and I knew that he had spyware on my computer and like at 12 years old, he comes to me, do you know what addiction is? Like he actually opened up the conversation as addiction. And I remember sitting in the Where car with him, up? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, okay. Yeah. Chabad community, Pittsburgh. Uh, parents of, yeah, well. uh, yeah. So your, your wife's mother was my sister's, I think, midwife at her birth. Like she, like she, she yeah. So and close friends with my mother and uh, uh, yeah. So, it it was this this evolution of I mean of I'm not an addict and I've almost had this aversion to ever becoming an addict and I've always been able to take breaks whenever I need to take breaks in order to not feel like an addict I've always been able to but really just switching hands um, and I think my drug of choice that I felt that I was told was wrong as a, as a kid was weed um, and I had this insistence to prove everybody wrong. Uh, that no, it's not a bad drug. It's not inherently bad, um, and I've always had this insistence to prove wrong. But I guess I got to I went off the derech for like five years, from twelve to eighteen years old, and the yeshiva where the where I came to this realization, where it was sh- shown to me that I didn't have a problem with God or Judaism. I just had a problem with the Jews who were teaching me about him, um, and the way and my experience going through school was. Like uh, the way I put it is like, I'm not, I I don't have a problem with God. I'm just an anti-Semite. Meaning I just (laughs) don't like some Jews. And, uh, and, but at a certain point, I've, I've never kept my porn a secret until I got into marriage. And I remember I got married at 20. Um, So I got married young uh, after three years of yeshiva, got married to the girl I wanted to marry. And I remember the one rule that I was told is never let your wife find out. Never let your wife find out. Somebody, uh, (laughs) someone who's still one of the most influential people in my life. But it was, I remember as a warning or as an example, as, as a warning. uh, um, uh, Oh no, he's an example (laughs) of who I'd like to be like, but, or not to be like, uh, I I have like, I have, he's one of my rebbies, like people who, as, as far as thinking and, Ability to share the beauty of Torah is one of the is the person who communicated that. So me. he's an example in many ways, but in this one, he was a warning guy. Very much, and I remember noticing that 
I used to be able to separate. Yeah, it, it took it, it took it took a, I, I took a it took a while. Um, yeah, oftentimes we want to put we want to put these people on pedestals, and they know everything, and they have all the answers, and they're amazing. And then we find one flaw, and we throw them in the ground, and we say they're a waste of time. These people. So kudos to be able to respect him for his Torah learning and recognize that the advice on um, your wife not finding out was pretty poor relationship advice. It was pretty poor, and it took until like two years ago. We we're married for almost seven years. Took up uh, like three years, like. I think for the first five years of our relationship, first of all, our, our sex life had its issues, um, just technically. Then all the challenges and the therapists and my cleanness from porn and abstinence from porn lasting a certain period of time and then just eventually stopping uh, and going back to it and then the and then becoming overwhelmingly aware of the walls that I was putting up around myself in order to make sure that she didn't know, right? And to hide this element of myself and then the fears of if myself is ever, if this element of myself, which is a deep, a deep part of myself is ever revealed, the whole relationship would just disappear. Um, and I eventually got to this point where with the therapist, he's like, you know, like maybe you should just like let your wife know, like, like it's normal. And everybody would always tell me it's normal. It's normal. It's normal. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, well, I don't care that it's normal. Like it doesn't do well with me, and I seem to have an overwhelming inability to stop myself from doing it. I could do it for stop for a week. I could stop for a month. Um, and yeah, I, I've always and the people also the people I've always found myself being connected with are extremely creative people and people who suffer from addiction, um, like or very tormented people. Uh, those are, I, I just have a way of walking into a room kind of like a, a, uh, like a, a sexual abuser can walk into a room and see who he could abuse. I could walk into a room and see who like I could connect with and relate with and, and share with. And, um, and, and there's parts of me that almost, I, I have struggled with lots of, uh, self-doubt and negative views of myself and porn actually almost seems like, uh, for me, the a defense mechanism, like it can, it convince it, it proves to me that I'm inadequate. It proves to me that I'm not capable. It proves to me that I'm not worthy. And but it's also if the I, reason to go there. Meaning the inadequacy is also the reason to go there, right? They kind of build off each other. Yeah. It's hard to know what started first. Yeah. And I still don't know what started first. Um, and what starts first. And I don't know, in the last few weeks, I've, I've been, clean in a way that I've been clean for like that I haven't been clean ever before. So do you see yourself as an addict today? I'm an addict. I'll always be an addict, not of porn, just I'm an addict. And I, I there's a, I don't know. And I relate with the addict and I think the addict in me is the best part of me. And it's, and it's, I'm the sensitive soul. I'm the soul of chaos. I'm the soul of, um, I, I am more in tune with suffering. So I experience suffering more and I can help, heal people suffering more and I can make people feel comfortable and I'm open and I'm vulnerable and like just, but I've always been kind of reserved and you kind of, you gave me this like kick in the ass kind of like stop being so reserved about it. Like you, it was really honestly that, that a quote that wasn't yours, but you brought up with, with faith that you don't need to be perfect in order to inspire others. Let others be inspired by your imperfection. And it just like that, 
that wiring switched, um, like just that clicked so much for me. So I have to say thank you for having that conversation. Within Chabad, if I had to say the single most detrimental um, aspect or teaching or like foundational building block of our belief system is that we should aspire to be perfect. And I think it starts with, um, I think it starts with the way we view the Rebbe, in fact. The, I, and getting to know him as I was older, understanding that he had a brother who wasn't from, fights with his nephew. Like we spoke about about the, the books, um, the story, and hey, Tavis, and they won the books, but to understand that this was an interfamilial dispute, something that if any of us would go through, we recognize a level of struggle in our lives. Right? If there was a family dispute that we were a part of, or our family was in dispute, we would recognize something that we were working on. And the suggestion always, at least the way it was taught to me, it seemed like this perfect being who was always perfect, will always be perfect, and then set us up to find role models who are also pretending to be perfect. And this whole idea of perfection, when you peeled it back, the Rebbe was someone who struggled in many ways, maybe not the way, even as I'm saying this, I want to qualify because I know like all the programming of the way I, 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 the, the way I heard about him, but he, the fact that he didn't have children was a source of pain for him. That's not perfect. If someone is experiencing something with a source of pain in their life, there's something, there's a struggle. The fact that he had to pretend to be his brother while he was communicating with his mother, he had to run away from the Nazis. He didn't magically make them disappear the way we were the way it was communicated that we just line up to him and he just makes all of our problems disappear and here's a perfect being. And I think if we communicated more of that struggle, it would have been a lot easier for us, our teachers and everyone else, to accept a level of imperfection. What's impressive about the Rebbe is what he did despite everything else. That's what's impressive, despite the fact that he was human. That's, what, that's what's impressive. And I think it kind of filters down through there and then all of us are trying to pretend, hey, we're each more perfect than the next. That's one of the main reasons I speak. It's just like, hey, like, let's stop. Let's stop with this craziness of pretending everyone has it figured out. Everyone knows the answers. And then someone getting up to speak can only speak if he has the answers. So I'm glad that you were inspired by that. I'm not speaking because I have the answers. I'm speaking because I have the questions. Right. And there's... It's just a, seeking a better and better questions. Like to me, like the the uh, uh, the the pursuit is of better questions. That has always been the Jewish pursuit: is better and better questions. And every answer and is a form of death. Process. Yeah, and I, I remember and every answer a form of death because it, it ends a road. It's just like okay, like okay, great. I I believe in God now. I know God, right? Because you gave me an answer. Oh, he, he exists. Or um, I believe in the Rebbe. The Rebbe said it. So. There's your answer. And I, I, I was rather disillusioned at a very young age because I didn't fit in. Like I, like from second, like I, as early as first grade, as early as second grade, I was a bad student, a bad kid. Uh, like, and my grades were gimels and dalits, right? D's and F's in Judaic studies and A's and B's in secular studies. And at around sixth grade, I noticed that pattern and I came to think maybe this is, isn't for me. And then I my parents are Balchuvas, so it was this ability. Like, how can you, like, you got to choose this. Like, like I want to want to believe, but like, 
but like the fact that I don't, like there was actually a source of like maybe shame or like inadequate, like, but eventually I'm like, no, it's just not for me. And I wrote it off and I had a great, my high school was actually the best. I got to leave home and go to a modern Orthodox day school and like, and it was the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. It took until I was about 14 years old for my parents to be like, shit, maybe this isn't working. And, uh, like we would prefer our kid, maybe our kid's not the problem. Maybe he's in the wrong institution in the wrong framework. And let's see what happens if we just let him flee the nest a little bit. And thank God that happened. Um, Kudos to your parents for putting you before religion. Many parents don't. Many parents don't. And I am very grateful for that it happened when it did. And there's obviously the resentments that come from it not happening happening earlier, but then the ability to empathize that, okay, they were bald chuvas who were thrown into a perfect system sir? with perfect, like... Are you the oldest? I'm the fourth of five, so no. Are you the first one who was struggling in the way you were? My older brother, uh, Zalman, above me, he paved the road for me. Um, he oh, didn't okay. get he he didn't get the benefit of of them taking the 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 foot off the gas uh, as early as I did. Right, so I was going to say it's early, but now that you say that there was an older sibling, I understand it. Yeah, fourteen years early, so you. Yeah, and like it was, I became independent, and like a, a, I was no longer just inadequate. I was capable of. I lived in somebody's house. I was. I got to choose when to study, when to. Went to work out, went to hang out with friends, went to come home. Every It was all up to me. Went to do my laundry. It was all up to me. And it gave me uh, a source of independence. And obviously, I used, like, so another thing that was pointed out in your interviews was uh, with faith was a love addiction. And I'd always, uh, have you ever heard Eric Fromm's book, The Art of Loving? I don't think so, no. It's an absolute necessity. But he has this line. The awareness of, of human separation without reunion by love is the source of shame. It is at the same time the source of guilt and anxiety. And he draws it back. He starts off his book with Gan Eden, the moment we ate from the Eitzadas Tovarah, and we became aware, like we became aware of our separateness from one another, and we were naked and ashamed, right? And like this awareness of our nakedness comes from as a consequence of our awareness of other. And the moment we're aware of other, we're now vulnerable to being hurt and vulnerable to being attacked. And we have rejected, rejected. We're aware of death. We're aware of we're aware of all of our insecurities and all of our in our all of our failures and weaknesses um, in relation to other. And his prescription is like what we what we do. We have all of these attempts at dulling that awareness of separateness so we could do that by becoming a member of a group and becoming part of the herd and getting safety that way or we could do drugs that make the outside world disappear and the only thing that exists is 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 me or do drugs that i cease to exist and like we're so and then he goes into drugs like ayahuasca and uh like this i mean he was writing in the 50s but how different cultures have managed to create different systems of uh of having he calls them orgiastic experiences or orgiastic activities where you can create a sense of oneness and togetherness between everybody so whether that's drinking alcohol in a social setting where 
like we bond or it's uh, Indians dancing around a bonfire and and he sees this as something positive or something negative, these orgiastic experiences. So he said to the degree of which it's accepted in culture and society and it actually works, um, it would be, it, he says with alcohol and drugs, it what ends up happening is you have that sense of oneness, but then the sense of shame and guilt and anxiety that come afterwards are that brought you to that need to drink art. It, um, are exponentially developed and you need to go. So if you live in a society where there's no shame and it's integrate and it's an integrated part of society, your alcohol might not be the biggest issue in the world. But if it's something that's alienating you from society and making you further away from people, it's going to further the 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 source of all human anxiety, which is the awareness of your separateness. And so his prescription is. Is and the irony love. is that likely when you, if you experience alcohol in that way, where it gives you a sense of belonging while you have it, but then a sense of shame afterwards, then you're likely to use alcohol again, creating that cycle more and more and more. Whereas if you use alcohol and you get that experience, and then afterwards you don't have the negative side effects, then you don't need to go back to alcohol. You do it every so right. often, but you don't need to go back to it. So it's actually what creates the unhealthy relationship I hear. so a question i had for you is like with the you had said on um value attainment with uh you uh, with uh patrick, patrick Beth david and you had said that if porn works for you like okay great like it just didn't work for me and my question is do is is there any context in which porn just works like if if we let go of the shame and guilt surrounding porn would we porn all of a sudden become fine and we should just normalize porn like uh, right, I'll explain my point over there my point was that uh, I'm not coming from a place of being an anti-porn advocate so in that interview uh, Patrick was asking me questions about porn itself like what's my opinion of porn and I, said, I have no opinion for society I may have as far as like personally, I have an opinion about a lot of things maybe I shouldn't have opinions about just because we walk down the street and we form opinions. But my opinion of porn is my own experience of being trapped in it and not being comfortable to ask anyone for help because of the shame associated with it. So when I get up and speak publicly, I am speaking to people who have already made the decision that porn is not for them. And they want out, but they don't feel safe enough to tell this to another human being. So I say, I'll do it. I'll do it first and I'll stand behind a microphone. I'll stand up on a stage. I'll be at a social gathering and I'll just mention the fact that I was dependent on porn. And I'm talking and, I, and I'm looking to reach out to those people who are struggling the way I was to make a moral um, statement about porn in any of all situations. I can't, but let's say certain things about porn, which I could say, but this is not about all porn. A lot of the porn that people are consuming, I do have strong opinions on because they're made in immoral ways. They feed an immoral system. They take advantage of people. They use people. They're, many people are lied to. They think they're filming something else and they're manipulated into uh, what they end up doing or they think the porn is going to be viewed in one country where it won't affect them and they end up signing a contract that allows them to use it everywhere. So you're feeding a system that is unhealthy and as much as that porn is unhealthy, it's unhealthy. But suppose a couple decided to film themselves having sex. 
and they share this with a few of their friends. Do I have the same view of that porn as I have of um, everything else? Maybe we wouldn't use the word porn for that experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not here to talk about porn across the board. I didn't analyze it. I didn't study it. I didn't, it's, it's in some ways it's not my business. As soon as I realized it wasn't for me, let me give you an analogy because you seem a little perplexed. Say alcohol. There are mm -hmm. some people who believe alcohol is poison. In any and all forms, alcohol is poison. I know people who believe this. Alcohol is straight up poison. It's poison for your body. And they'll give you the science behind it, how it destroys your liver and how it's not healthy for anything and the way it consumes you and your brain, your body, and everything associated with it. They call it a... Um, um, so one person told me that alcohol comes from the words alcohol, which is a, a spirit of delusion or a spirit of something, some sort of like referencing. In other words, it's always negative. Other people say, I drank too much alcohol. I joined Alcoholics Anonymous because it wasn't working for me. And let me share my experience from there. So to ask that guy what he thinks about alcohol, whether it's poison for everybody, I don't know. Maybe it's great in some cases. I have no clue. I know for me it was detrimental, and there's millions, if not tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who have already made the decision that porn is bad for them, and they can't get out of it. So let me just talk to them. Why do I have to worry about the people who are on the fence about it? If you're on the fence, God bless. There's so many people. Like you're talking about, you've made the decision. You don't longer, you don't longer want to use porn. It's unhealthy for you. You've tried to stop. You have a few weeks over. So let me talk to you and let me see how I can help you get to a few months sober, a few years sober, maybe a few decades sober. That wouldn't, is it, isn't you where I should pour my energy into or should I try to convince someone who's not sure? Um, Why? Um, Why would I yeah, right, you don't have to convince. So that I was just, my point. Yeah. That was my point on it. My, my, per, my personal experience and then experience from talking to just being open about it for years, like, and being able to like just blatantly whether it's to my rabbi or to anybody like with the fear that i'll never become perfect because i don't see myself ever and it wasn't just porn it was it was sex it was like meaning the desire for sex my sex drive like and the and also this uh, acute awareness of that like putting up blockers and just stopping the behavior wasn't going to solve the issue there was a, a need to find out what I guess growing up Chabad, the idea of like this and its opposite, God created. So mm -hmm. there, like, there's no such thing as a Yetzirah or a Yetzirah, an evil inclination or a good inclination. There's just this thing called drive, will, and it could be expressed in two ways. So if I am running to porn or I'm running to, to TV or I'm running to anything that allows me to quiet, like, there's something that isn't being expressed that needs to be expressed, and I need to figure out what that is. Um, and and until I figure out what that is, there's really no point in just stopping. That was kind of my attitude for a long time. And if I your... can correct one thing, that oftentimes we don't figure it out in in the way like we figure with our minds. It's what you're doing now is a form of expression, and different writing you do is a form of expression, and that may be the energy that is that needs to come out and you're more likely to figure it out by playing with random tools of expression, whether it's painting, podcasting, journaling, speaking, um, dancing, than you are figuring. 
Right. Okay. So uh, my that's my that my the name of my podcast is Thinking Aloud, um, which is is it's this space where I'm just thinking out loud. These aren't my thoughts per se. I don't believe this per se. Like I mean, it's not. It's a respectful place for us to explore our thoughts and this belief that by communicating, by sharing, by almost playing ping pong with like a conversation, passing the ball back and forth, being open, like is it's, it's in that space where I'm most creative where I'm most open. And for me, what I've realized like explicitly it's, but I, I, I've, I journal. So I get to look back at my journal and I get to see where I haven't been writing where I have been writing and the exact same time of year, the same issues popping up. I just need to do this. I just need to do that. I just need to work out. I just need to stop watching porn and I just need like, and everything will be okay. And I could look back at my good times and see the, my behaviors about my good times. And I could look at my bad times and I could see the behaviors I was participating in my bad times. But I was listening to, uh, you've heard of Joey Rosenfeld. Yeah. Yeah. I think he and I will speak soon. He's, 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 uh, so, I reached so, out to him recently. so a year ago is when I came across him and that started like the, the, that's where I don't know where the clarity came from, but it started then. Um, and then existentialist philosophers, uh, also, but he has this, like this line where it's like the soul of an addict or the, the addicted soul is one that contains within itself vast storehouses of intensity and desire. It is for this reason that the process out of addiction towards recovery offers gifts that could never have been realized without addiction. In this sense, addiction will be seen as a profoundly difficult condition that can give birth to an equally, if not more profound sense of spiritual, spiritual sensitivity and experience. Um, and like that spoke to me and it's like, I am an addict and I, and the ultimate desire is, is to be creative and to be recognized, to be, and the fear of being creative is that I'm going to be creative and I'll put something out into the world and it's going to get judged and, and recognized incorrectly or belittled or not recognized for what it is. It's going to hit, go hit on, fall on deaf ears. Like if, cause what creativity is, 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 is there a better, is there a better metaphor for um, a creative expression falling on deaf ears than masturbation? There is none. I, I laugh with my wife. Are you literally doing it? Yeah, literally. You literally do. You're, you're, literally doing it. Instead of get, you're you're spilling your creative juices, as as they would uh, as they would be put put. And so, what are you worried about? That it's going to do nothing, and you're going to get judged. So you yeah. take your creative forces, you do nothing with them, right? You spill it out. Mm-hmm. It's the same energy, right? That's what he's saying. You do nothing with them, and then you judge yourself. You yeah. got exactly what you asked for. Exactly. exactly. Period. It's, it's happening anyway. Yeah. So you and, may as well do this, and then you definitely created something. Straight up. And someone else may be judging, but at least you're not. Right, and I'm or still going to be are. judging, and I am sensitive, and I do care about what other people think, and people saying, "Oh, just stop caring about what other people think." That never spoke to me because I do care what people think and feel, and I do care how 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 what I say is received by them. And it does matter to me that I speak effectively and I so, communicate so can I help effectively. You with that? Yeah, please. Okay. So you, you say you care about what people think, right? Some people are saying you shouldn't care about what people think. So some people who you care about what they think, don't think. They just have opinions. They don't think. So I also care about what people think, you know, which people, the people I care about. 
So there are probably about five or 10 people, not I care about what they think, I actively solicit what they think. Right, there are people we call for feedback. Literally, we call them for feedback. Right. We say, hey, can you tell me what you think about this? Can you watch this and let me know? Or if there's enough people saying something similar, then hey, I'll pay attention. But I don't care about what anyone thinks because half of them aren't thinking. Yeah, and even if they are, it doesn't... Right, so that would... We can care without getting lost in every person's opinion or half-baked opinion. Right. But, but the need for feedback, like it is a need for feedback. And without Absolutely, feedback, right, we go insane. Same thing, directed. It's the same thing with the sexual drive. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a beautiful thing. It's, cre it's creativity. When I started my recovery process, I shut down my sexual energy completely. I was afraid of my sex drive. I was afraid that if I allowed even a thought to come up, I was going to derail because it took me to dark places porn and strip clubs and prostitutes, I was way off the deep end with it. And it never seemed to stop. It just more and more and more and more and more because it wasn't being fed. It wasn't doing anything. So I shut it off. When I shut it off, yeah, I was sober, but I was also sad. I also had no motivation or less motivation. I, I didn't feel creative. I didn't feel energized. I didn't feel playful. All of those things were lost. And over time, as I've begun to trust my sexual drive again and trust myself not to get overwhelmed by it, I find a lot of those other things coming back. So it's the same, it's the same thing. It's, I, I care what people think about me, certain people, the people I care about, I'm directing it. I'm not, I'm not taking it and pretending it doesn't exist because how can we pretend we don't care what people think about us? That means we don't care about connection. But who are the five or 10 people that you care about? Right. And then I also care about whoever I'm talking to at the moment. So I've always like I like you had, I have a fear of public speaking. I have I have I've led one minion in my entire life. Um, and it was my bar mitzvah minion for Marv. Like and like to and this idea of getting up in front of a multitude of people. But if I can speak to one person and then two people and three people and I can gauge where their attention is at all times and I could adapt to what I'm like I can tell when I'm saying something is falling on deaf ears I, and I could adjust what I'm saying because in the end of the day if if like if it's my if I'm an important idea is being communicated and somebody's not hearing it whose fault is that right like it's 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 on me um, but we you know what's interesting is we don't always know I remember when I, you know, you're familiar with the first step in recovery? You know what the it first is? Step first step is, is stop drinking alcohol, admitting to ourselves that we are an addict. Yeah, that we're powerless. powerless but in, um, in, in specific programs, especially uh, programs related to sexual addictions, as part of the first step, as part of this admission, uh, there's uh, a public talk of sorts given in front of the group. So... At some point in time, I came in, I got a sponsor, I had to know more people, I started working on the steps, and he said, okay, I want you to write your story and tell your story. And in that space, I, I share where I'm coming, I share my, my history, I share all of that, I share where, how my addiction progressed, and I share how I eventually made it to the meetings. And it's very emotional, or it could be very emotional, and for many of us, it's the first time we shared aspects or details 
of our story that we never share with anyone else. To this day, there are aspects of my story that um, I haven't shared. It's, it's, not, it's not proper, it's not necessary, it's not decent for me to go into the gory details of my addiction, of my story. It's not, a lot of that's private. I, I share what needs to be shared, but in that setting, there are certain parts of the infection that we need to get out. Maybe there was this particular, maybe there was something very shameful that um, someone went through. Maybe it was the frequency of porn. I remember one person talking about he watched porn for 40 hours straight. You know, he was a programmer and he's like, from when he got off work on Friday till Monday morning, he was at his computer the whole time and he left a few times to go to the bathroom, go to the fridge and eat, always coming back to his seat and slept at his computer. And through all that, all he did was watch porn. And that was particularly shameful for him until work started again on Monday morning. For others, it may be the type of porn they viewed, whether it was gay porn or transsexual porn or some other porn. And that's the specific aspects of, of their shame. So having a meeting where amongst 10 or 15 close people, those details can be shared is so powerful because then we can see people and a connection gets created. Anyway, the reason I went here is because there was something you said that triggered a memory where through my story, I, when I wrote it and I spent a lot of time with it on my sponsor, I used an expression that I didn't mean it literally. And the expression I used was at different points in my story when I wanted to highlight that this was something really important that I missed. I said something like, I prayed never to forget that. And then I said another one, I prayed never to forget that. And I, I was being ironic in my writings and I actually did forget it and realizing um, now how important it was that I forgot that moment that I repeated that same thing. But I said, I prayed never to forget that. I prayed never to forget that. I said it five or six times in my story. And uh, one guy says to me, um, after, after you speak, you go around the room and people share their thoughts. And it's a very healing moment, right? Where we can put out some of our deepest, darkest secrets in specific detail. And then, you know, people can give their feedback and say, oh, wow, that was so powerful for me. It brings me back to this moment in childhood. Or when you said this, this is what it felt like for me. And one guy says to me, he says, you know, Ellie, I don't know you very well, but what struck me about your story was the way that through it all, at your deepest moments, you prayed. <laughs> that you were able to do that and have the presence of mind. And I did not believe in God at that moment. I did not mean that literally. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I realized from that moment is we're just speaking with we are literally just speaking. And what someone is getting is exactly what they need to get for good or for bad. It's their message for them. You have a hundred people, a thousand people listen to what we're saying here and people will be left with completely, completely different experiences. So if we can let that go, right. it's, it's, a, it's so freeing. Like it freed me of, oh, I'm going to put everything I have into it, but I'm going to know what's going to come from here. And what someone does with that, how am I supposed to know? Right. The way and it touches it, someone, how am I supposed to know? So for me, what I, I realized, the realization I came to recently was that I, the person I have to please is myself. Meaning when I write down an idea or a thought or a feeling that like, or I communicate it, especially now that I'm recording what I talk about and I can listen back to what I said and how I said it. And when it sounds that's not what I meant that didn't capture it. I, I could say it better. I could say it like, so it's me that it has to, I have to be able to look at it and say, Oh, that's beautiful. Like 
it, and that's like and have that like aha like almost getting clarity from myself i've been trying i've been talking about and thinking about the connection between addicts and creative people and how essentially the addict in the creative in the people who are not just everybody's an addict on a scale in my opinion right like we're all we all have our tendencies on a scale we're all creative on a scale but not everybody's a creative person not everybody's an addict and i think they're the same people and uh and that's why like and this need to create and it's the need to be okay with okay with creating and also a belief that so i had a, i have a, a weird fear like and a and I recognize this weirdness that if I were to become the best version of myself, if I were to fully shine, I would be more attractive, right? And when you're more attractive, meaning not just physically, just like you, you like somebody who walks into a room and they, and they have confidence, there's a certain attractiveness. They draw people towards them. People come towards them. And it's like almost this distrust in myself. Like uh, I forget which comedian says it. Everybody did a bit on, People get so upset about Tiger Woods sleeping with like all these supermodels, like and judging him, and like, like, who are you, right? Like, like, what do you think you would be like if you had a bus full of supermodels sitting outside your door? And like, the idea Nietzsche presses is like, if you're moral because you're incapable or incompetent in some way, um, that's not morality. So it's almost a safety Jordan mechanism. Says, Jordan Peterson in the name of Nietzsche. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no, yeah. he says like, if you're violent. And you create peace, that's meaningful. But if you can't create violence and you're peaceful, what? Yeah, what it's a direct, it's a direct quote from okay, Nietzsche. Quote. Um, nice. Nietzsche okay. has some of the most incredible paragraphs that I, I, I wrote that I would love to, like, to just, they fit into this. And so there's so one say that, the direct quote again? Um, the, I'll, I'll give, it's a different uh, direct quote. Um, th but whatever, this, this, you need to be, if, if, if I'm only good and I'm only a faithful husband and I'm only a faithful, like, because I'm safe, like, that's not really worth that much. Like, so it's like, let's see, like, like having a little trust in my, in my, in my ability to be great and to be powerful and to be creative and to be attractive and not hide myself. Like there's a certain, like, I don't know, even just talk, like there's a certain need to hide myself because I'm afraid, like, I, I have a certain belief no, that if I... you're aware that there's unlimited levels to this, right? Yeah. What do you mean by that, Meaning though? you've already stepped out, you've already stepped out more than a lot of people, just by nature of a conversation like this. Yeah, and I, it, it, yes, it, it's, this is a bit of a process. I can step out more, you're saying? You could step out more, right? For example, like, in the last few months, I've stepped out more than I have at any point in my life. And last week, a guest came my, my way that made me nervous because I understood that this guest can throw me in to the fire a lot deeper than I am um, in ways that I didn't feel ready, in ways that I don't feel ready at the moment. I feel a little bit more ready today than I did a week ago, but there's unlimited levels to this. What, what do you mean by the fire? So what, why is it a f like, like, okay, what was it that made you feel that way? And then, like, what I'm still trying to put my finger on what is the it that we're trying to, that we're afraid of? Right, we're constantly stretching in different ways, right? So it's just that growth and what happens when you, when you do that. So, for example, 
Um, when I was in yeshiva, I got a scooter. I was I had started working, making a couple of bucks, and I had a scooter. The scooter cost me $150. But most kids in 19 didn't have $150. Maybe it was $400. Didn't have $150 or $400 that they can spend on a scooter. So from the kids in school, I was the only one with a scooter. That made me uncomfortable in some way. Because here I am, here's all my friends, and I'm the one with the scooter. Today would kind of like, a scooter made you uncomfortable? Like this thing is side of the road. Today, give me a Ferrari and that may make me uncomfortable. And maybe it's not a Ferrari. Maybe it's a $100 million house. Maybe it's a private plane. There's unlimited levels to what that will do. In terms of the podcast itself, there was a time where I did mostly audio. There was a time where every time I spoke, I felt the need to invite um, a guest who had some form of name that I can piggyback behind saying, you're not coming for me. You're coming for them. I never pretended to have anything. I'm just the one who put it together. I'm asking the questions that you all have. And then stepping out and saying, no, I have something to share. And then putting it in the form of audio and video. And then putting it in the form of hiring people who are going to help me with it. And then putting it in the form of getting a certain guests that are outside of a certain comfort zone. I have a comfort zone, right? I have a comfort zone within the Jewish community. I have a comfort zone within the healing community. Going beyond that. Each one of these are forms of stretching. It's no different than lifting weights. Does 10 pounds scare you? No, but try 100 pounds. It scares you. Something Jordan points out is that the creative person, and I think we can switch the addict and the creative person with almost every single time he says the word, the creative type, because he, I posted a reel today, just a compilation of, like, why would you ever, like, you wouldn't wish being creative on on somebody. It's it's the most tormenting, like, thing in the world, like, because if you're not creative and you're not pushing your boundaries, you're not expanding your horizons, you're not venturing into the unknown and you're not doing those things that actually you wither up and die. If you're a creative person, like he he uses those words, like, and, and it was like, I, 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 over the past few years, I've been feeling that sense of like, there's the depression of, marriage right so like what because anytime you cho- make any choice you're mourning all of the infinite amount of choices you didn't make that like, right so you choose one woman you're you literally like you there's a mourning of of all of the other women in your world like a real mourning there's a reason why sheva brochus and shiva are both seven days and why we have a mitzvah <laughs> to be the sameach hatan v'kala, right like and because why should we have to be sameach they're there why should we have to make them happy they're already happy why what do i mean they're getting married the best thing ever um and this realization that there is, is always a mourning that comes from someone that comes from the same person who told me uh uh to never let my wife know that i uh that i uh watch porn um never (laughs) never never let her never let her find out but by the way that's the common view there's a certain if you're you're stepping into a relationship where you can't be fully honest i would mourn that too yeah and uh, in a relationship i got married at 20 and i got married if i'm being if, if i'm being honest out of a place of i found a woman i loved I tried to break up with her. I couldn't because I had no interest in dating for any other purpose other than marriage at that, like around that point, I realized like, and I'm not ready to get married. And I broke, we well, we were on and off. Right. But like, I broke it, like we're done. And it certainly like, it came back to like, okay, I want to be with her. The only way I can be with her is marriage. It's not possible. Found out it's possible. We can make it work. We can get help. We're 20, whatever. And 
there was this for years, like, okay, so my wife was in school and I was just making some money. My in-laws were helping initially. There was too many strings attached. So I cut my in-laws off from helping. I went out to go get work. I have no skill sets. I have no like credentials or anything. So I had a job working for a friend in his vape shop and did everything for him and with him. Um, and I learned every day, right? Like I learned Torah. Like I learned for three hours in the morning and I loved it. And I had a great day at the shop. You guys are happily married today? Happily. I mean, yeah, happily married, still happily married, two kids. Um, and we work, we talk, we like, and it, we, we, we work, we're too similar for our own good in, in, in many ways. Um, and as opposed to opposites attract, we're very similar in, in many ways that sometimes feeds into, feeds into, uh, feeds into negative patterns between the two of us. But I wanted to, I knew I wanted the only area, school was never my thing, but I could do school if it was studying psychology and philosophy, right? Like that was my, like I could become a, I could become a great psychologist and a good, and a, and a great philosopher. I could do that. And I could imagine myself sacrificing day in and day out towards that aim. Cause it's an aim that I desire. And I don't see anything else that I really desire as much as, that was that was the That's idea at the time. To be that clear, yeah. And but it, and it was, it's it, it, so there was a period of time where, uh, the, like I okay finally I got, my wife was in school she finished I got my shot right and it, it, I got my shot because COVID happened it stopped me from doing my work nothing was happening anyways okay now I'll shoot my shot instead of waiting until I make a million dollars and I can come back to school and afford school let's just do it now started school never thought I would get into the psychology program at Hebrew U. Um, cause it took, it had to do a machina, which was in Hebrew and in Hebrew tests, like a preparatory program in order to get into the school, you needed a 99 GPA to get into the psych program. I've never been more than a B plus student in my entire life ever. That was the peak. Like, and that was cause I always figured out a way to not, to do as little work as possible and get by. Um, and I was an expert at that, but I got a 99 and I got in to the program I wanted to get into got into the program. It was brutal. And then my body started to attack me, right? Like physically, like, like I, I got what's uh, th thought was Crohn's. It fistulized into like, uh, whatever, like really, really, really painful to a point where like I had to stop school. Cause I'm like, I can't do this. Like it's literally, I'm beating myself up. I'm failing in school. I'm falling behind. I'm in so much pain. I'm so anxious. I just need to take a break. And the moment I took a break, there was, I had this fear. If I take a break, I'm never going to be able to go back. I'm never going to be able to go back to school. And I was kind of right. My wife's anxieties about money kicked in again. And what are we going to do? And if we have another baby on the way. And I'm like, all right, so I'll give, I'll stop. I'll go get a sales job. I'll do sales. And in the last four weeks, I basically was this moment where my wife realized and I realized like I had given up, like I'm not going back to school. Like I'm going to figure out and I'll do my podcast. I'll figure out how to make it work. I had this moment when my wife realized like, no, Mendel kind of has to do this. Like it, and it's, it's in our best interest and it might take some time, but he has to do it. And the moment she, and she came to me with that and that clicked so much. And the moment she came to me with that, like I realized how much I wanted it, how clear I, I've always been about it. And okay. So it's still difficult. And another, like, it's still difficult. And I knew that watching porn stopped me from, or watching TV excessively stopped me from, taking the time it takes to create a plan to create to just put out a a vision to 
to write my thoughts down. It just stops it. It like it fills that void of oh, I need to create. I need to do something instead of needing to create. I go to I go to porn or I go to Netflix or I go to Instagram and scroll mindlessly. And Joey Rosenfeld again had he was giving a a friend of his just died of an overdose, and he was he gives a series to the he gives a twelve steps like two. There's a twelve step program in Jerusalem, uh, an AA institute, and he gives them. Essentially, it's instead of it being Torah with big book commentary, it's co- Torah's commentary on the big book, essentially. Um, and he, he's like he, and he's always been like the addict, the addict, the addict. Like it's good, it's good. It's it's like who you are. You're the best. You're the soul of Torah. And he got to this point where he's like, just like he talking about how talking about how sobriety, the main like the main thing is believing is believing in one more moment of sobriety. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? And like, what would I, like, it hit me. And I'm like, like what do I have to be sober from? Like, cause it's not, poor, like I, I have so many different things. Like I have to be sober for my whole life. Like everything, conversations um, are an escape. Uh, weed is an escape. Alcohol is an escape. Uh, like, and I, like, not escape. Those are all forms of connection. So some of them are detrimental and some of them are not detrimental. And uh, he basically Why said- Why would you say the disconnections? So they know that they are connect- so some of them are disconnections and some of them are connections and so both disconnecting and connecting f- f- fill the void so it's hard to tell whether or not I'm doing it because I'm disconnecting or I'm doing it because I'm connecting like I could have a conversation that is is just a drug for me right like I'm just it's it's like I don't know the, I need to be recognized and v- like v- a voyeuristic um, right showing of my greatness or, or whatever or something yeah. Else. yeah it, it could be sick and perverted and i and i could learn torah and it could be just me like i'm not really dealing with a thing that needs to be dealt with um like i'm just doing that to turn away as opposed to look in and but he, he put it like this he said the ultimate goal is a sober life he says sobriety is taking life seriously but he was out of a point of frustration he was speaking he said we have this top-down approach where the mind leads to the heart Mind leads to heart, which leads to action. He says, like, I need to understand my addiction. I need to know why it happens. I need to have my, I have to, like, my mind needs to, I have to read Carl Jung and I have to read the big book and I have to know it. Um, And once I can convince my mind of it, then that'll convince my heart and that'll convince my actions. He said, but sometimes you don't have your mind and you don't have your heart. Like, Like, so what the hell do I do when I, like, I don't feel like I have my mind and I don't feel like I have my heart. And and it was this moment that I stopped like when I was writing this and reading it. Like, is it, is it, I just don't act like just don't like in the end of the day, the only thing you have to hold on to is this not acting, not engaging in the escape. And, and like, there was this, okay, I'm not going to do it. And like 15 minutes, like in the moment I heard that there's like, okay, the urge to escape. Right. Like, and I, okay, I'm just going to wait five minutes and then 10 minutes and like, and I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to go on my computer and do my work. I'm not going to go on my, I'm not going to go like watch Netflix. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything other than I have a pencil in my hand and a paper in front of me. The only thing I'm allowed to do is write. That's it. Not to figure out whether or not I should write on, on my computer or I should record a video. Like I just, the only thing I'm allowed to do is write. And I, I've been doing micro doses of mushrooms uh, for about 14 weeks now I go to therapy in the mornings on Tuesdays and it took me a while. Like I just knew 
I, like I needed to reshift, like shift the way I was thinking, like something was wrong. Like my, my perspective is just locked in the wrong place. And I, like I, I've been doing this be, like for a number of weeks. And finally I found like this moment, I realized go to the forest, do your microdose of mushrooms after your therapy. You're not, you're going to sit in this bench and you're not going to, you're not allowed to, uh, yes, but you can't write on a macro dose. Um, <laughs> it's just enough. It's so for me, it's like enough inebriation to like, to lubricate and open my creative process like, as opposed to like, I do, I would like to go and do a, a serious trip, but I'd like to do that in a professional context the next time I do it, as opposed to just that. doing I it. But the micro, yeah. yeah. For myself, anytime I do experiences, just because we mentioned it, always with a guide, always plan before. So I don't believe I need a guide. I like I, but I do because I do believe I know the ingredients that go into like the set and the setting and how that matters like more than anything. And my anxieties that pop up, right? And just writing down my anxieties that pop up, and I just keep. I came to this awareness like I'm gonna. Be, I can be okay for five more minutes. I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. I can handle this. Even I can if, handle even sobriety. Even if you don't do a guide, even if you don't do a guide, you definitely want someone. Until someone has a lot of experience, they definitely want someone nearby, even if it's in the room next door or standing a hundred yards away. If it's outdoors, that should the need arise, yes, there's another human being who's there. I, and it, I share it, from yes, I share I, I, experience because the goal is yeah. to get out of the mind. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get out of the mind. That's the purpose of a. Microdose. If we can get out of the mind and get into somewhere else that's a little bit more free, what happens when we're out of our mind? What do our legs? But what's, know? what's wild is that that is in our mind, nonetheless. Like it, it, it isn't anywhere else but in our mind. All of that experience. Like to me, that's one of the uh, the first time I ever did psychedelics. I was seventeen. It was right before I went to Yeshiva for the first time, and I think of my my cousin who was experienced. He's like. He gave me like we, we. My parents were out of town. We had a nice house. I set up one room for a candle, like with a, a peaceful, quiet room, and then we had the back. Like it just set up the whole house. And I had two of my really good friends, my best friend and another friend. We're gonna do some serious dose of mushrooms together. And I remember like that, like that single experience is the one thing that allowed me to realize that the way I perceive reality isn't necessarily the way reality is like, like, and like that single realization allowed. But you didn't feel that that was an experience more than a realization. And like, was it just in the mind? Cause I experienced it more. I, I felt it more like a full body experience. Like if you're afraid, where are you afraid? Your heart is pounding, your stomachs and butterflies. If you're in love, where are you in love? Right? Your mind can't think, your appetite's suppressed, you can't sleep, you can't sleep, your heart's pounding again, butterflies in your stomach again. Right? So it's a full body experience. How do you know if you're in love? You didn't think it through. It's right. I guess we're I think we're 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 missing each other on what we mean by mind. Like uh I I like all experience is it, to the degree of which there's conscious awareness of it. Like that's your mind. I, I, I don't know. I, that's kind of what I mean. Like, you're, okay. You, okay. Maybe, maybe I have to find a different, a different I phraseology. Mean, right. oh, fine. 
as, as long as we agree that it's not just in the domain of thought. No, I, I, I know it. I experienced it as true. Like it's like yeah, a, it's an like, a, like yeah, like a Moshe Kibbal Torah Sinai, right? Like not from God, right. from this experience of Sinai, like, like this, like it was, yeah, like it's all encompassing experience. And uh, like, uh, it, it gave me a tremendous amount. Um, what, what brought you, how did you find psychedelics and, and like, what brought you there? Uh, Gabor Mate, straight Gabor Mate. I was uh, an avid fan of Gabor's uh, from when I was introduced to his book in the realm of hungry ghost early recovery. This is say about 2012, let's say 2013. I come across his book, start reading some of his work. I really appreciated it. Um, I found a way for it to completely dovetail with the 12 steps and also completely dovetail with, with, um, with Judaism, so there was a part of it that was beyond Galbor's own work, but his he was a, a trusted guide, so to speak, in this uh, forest of addiction. And uh, by the way, one of my favorite definitions of addiction is from Shays Taub, where he says, an addict is someone for whom spirituality is a necessity rather than a luxury. So on some level, we can say that about every single person, but there are degrees of necessity. So, and I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term I like personally, and before I go back to Gagmate, but personally, I don't like the term addict for any other reason, for any other um, purpose than to direct the healing. I, mean, I am an addict, is that true? On a psychedelic experience, I am Ellie, is not true. Right there. So how can I be an addict, right? As an example, right? There's awareness of I am. How can I be Ellie, for example? How can you be Mendel if when you were born, you didn't have that name? And I was born, I didn't have that name. We were named at eight days. So were you no one until then? So obviously I exist as someone without this name, just as you exist as someone without, without your name. Um, so to say I am an addict, like, what does that mean? Did I, I became an addict? Am I, am, I, am I a farmer if I'm farming? So what the, the only purpose for it is to direct healing because if I say I am an addict, I'm more likely to um, embark on a program of healing that other addicts participate in. You can call it the 12 steps, you can call it others. So just like with, I think it's with ADD, in order to diagnose it, they give certain medication and they see how the person reacts to it and they say, oh, reacted, you have ADD. It didn't react, okay, you have, some, you have something else. So I mean, the title itself is not useful. It's only useful in order to direct the healing. So if someone's, that, that for me, and the reason why it's important is I see so many people stuck and you mentioned this at the beginning of the conversation, I'm not, art addict, I'm not an addict, I'm not an escape artist. You're not anything. You're not an escape artist, you're not an addict, you're not any of those things. What you are is someone who's choosing to follow a certain modality of liberation. And if that one is one that many people who've called themselves addicts has used, God bless. Here's the hat, here's the t-shirt, sign up. I'm an addict, you're an addict, let's do this together. I found liberation here, you can hopefully find liberation and we'll call ourselves addicts all day long, but we're never gonna become that. Anyway, back to Gabor Mate. So he was someone I followed. And uh, one day I podcast with Tim Ferriss. He's talking about, and I was anti-drug drug as, I, as it gets. 
if I heard someone was smoking weed, I didn't want to hire them. I didn't want to be involved with them. I was like, no, because people lost motivation. I, I was playing. I had plenty of room for vices within the sexual realm, but very little in the mind-altering place. Not alcohol, not otherwise. Very little alcohol. And I judge it heavily. But when I hear him talking to Tim, Tim Ferriss and he says, ayahuasca is the single is the number one healing tool or agent for addiction. I said, whoa, I gotta pay attention to this. And what was so cool for me was how he had just encountered it a few years before. His, the, the way he says his story is that he started speaking about addiction after he wrote the book and seminar after seminar, he's getting people asking him about ayahuasca. What do you know about ayahuasca? Have you ever tried ayahuasca? What do you think about ayahuasca? And he said to me, he's like, first I got so exasperated like, why are you talking about ayahuasca? I know nothing about ayahuasca. And then one day he's like, why do I know nothing about ayahuasca? If so, he would ask me this question. If I'm going to be an expert in addiction, I may as well explore. And he did. And I have so much respect for someone in his 70s who was able to do that. So I did the same thing. And opinions of the yin-yang. Go do it and watch your mind be blown open and your whole family start feeling better. Right? So... When you when you experience, I'm not saying for I'm not saying for everyone in that way, and that means just go to the side of the road for Peru can have a comprehensive conversation. But for me, it was I heard him say that, I trusted him, and I, I went. And you, how did you go f- about finding a uh, a shaman or whoever let the, someone like? How did you find the place? Did you go to Peru or did you do it in Miami? Um. I went to Costa Rica, how I went about finding it, just speaking to people, and then someone who I trusted said he had experience with this person, and that's how else, you know, I want to be the first to try, certainly, Um, but, you know, it's like, once you know you want it, then it starts popping up all over the place, like, you start seeing it everywhere, so first you know one, and then after I heard Gabor Mate talk about it, then, um, I, I was sure my wife would judge it pretty heavily and it was one thought, okay, how am I going to have this conversation with her? And she tells me a story of some relatives of hers um, who were struggling in their marriage and someone took him through an MDMA session and it really helped them. So she's like, oh, wow, you know, this, this, uh, these relatives of her are doing better than ever. So I'm like, okay, so she's open. So that was, you know, one block. And then... So to me, that was okay. Two two kind of messages about plant medicines, and then uh, my wife and I go to France, and for a weekend. And you know, when you're there, when you're traveling, you're just kind of more open to meeting people. And a friend of mine says, "Hey, I have this apartment like a mile away from where you're staying. Um, I have some friends staying there, but if you want to check it out and hang out with them, okay, fine." Like. Yeah, what are we doing? We're doing. We're in the south of France. I don't know anybody here. Yeah, I'll go over. I went over, and there was a couple who uh, were on their honeymoon, and with a bunch of their friends, and we kind of just joined. And we all knew this guy in common, although he wasn't there. But they were using his apartment. And in chatting, uh, this guy talks about um, his struggle with sex addiction. Although I don't think he used the term sex addiction, but just sexually promiscuous behaviors and how psychedelics healed him. I'm like, okay, this is three. <laughs> this is three, like, I got it. Gabor Mate, my wife, honeymoon experience. And I came back 100% certain from that trip. I came back 100% certain that I'm doing this. This trip, 
I remember when I landed back from France, it was Arab Rosh Hashanah when I came back from France. By Sukkot, I had the name of someone who um, does it. And the way that happened is I got a call from someone who I did not know well, and they said, Ellie, I've never, <laughs> um, I don't really share this part of my life with other people, but for whatever reason, I feel the need to tell you about it. My understanding now is I came up for them on an experience. And um, if you're ever interested in the experience, here's someone I work with, and they're a good resource in the space, either working with them or working with others. And so these things kind of lay it all out. And then from there, as I got to know, you know more people in that space, and the people I've worked with, it's always been from referrals. Someone who's worked with, had a good experience, I trusted them, and I don't know how we go. How do you, how do you relate with... I think it's a deeply... I mean, whether it's Chabad, I don't know where the dogma comes from, but that, I mean, it can't be Chabad because they use alcohol, but um, like that this, any substance like using, like you should be able to get there with your mind alone. Like you should be able to meditate your way there or like, how do you, like, d do you have that voice in your head? I Did you have that voice in your head? I had it. I had it. I had it. I should be able to do a lot of things. But the question is this, you know, one person, one person called it a shortcut. I said, okay. But I, but I took a car here, right? You have a problem with that shortcut. And when I got sexually abused, was that a shortcut to screw me? When they made the internet and they made the algorithm so freaking easy to feed me porn, was that, a, was that a shortcut to screw me? Why can't I use these? I don't understand the issue. Which part of my struggle do you want to give to me? The cheating, the addiction, the anxiety, the depression, the fear, what exactly do you want? Which, which part of my life would you give me back from before psychedelics? Which one would you like to stick on me in the name of whatever, whatever dogma you want to throw at me? So at this point in time, it was from experience itself and then seeing so many other people find healing. And this is not a conversation um, around psychedelics because there are, it's such a powerful tool and it needs, what I mean, it's not a conversation, like it would take a couple of hours to really go into it. It's such a powerful tool. It's, you want to use the term holy, and what I mean by that is the same way I mean sex is holy. You know, there's so many things that look so similar, but they're so different. And I'm have, if I'm having sex with someone tonight, and I tell you, Mendel, I'm having sex tonight. But then I had two different things. One is I had with my wife, or I say with a prostitute. Those are not different. Those are opposites. Opposites, literally opposite. So if I tell you I'm having a mushroom experience this evening, what else about that? Right? There are a few more details I can add that one can make it deeply healing and another, for lack of a better word, just a desecration of some of the most beautiful things that exist. So I understand, like, where did it come from? It comes from all of us. It comes from all of us seeing these fires that exist in the world and way too many people getting burned by it. And they say, stay away, stay away from fire. But that's, we can't stay away from fire. We, we can't, even a kid sees fire, they got to touch it. Espe yeah, no yes. Especially the addict who to that degree is still a kid. Like if you like the, I don't know if you're like the, the rebel, curiosity. The, re the curiosity and the rebel like attitude of I'm not the same as everybody else. And I, the, I, I, I had like, I was very young when I realized that whatever you shouldn't smoke. I remember the first time I went out to go buy weed, 
before I ever did, like I was on my way out the door, my mom sits me down and said, if I ever catch you smoking weed, I'm going to put you in rehab. And I'm like, first off is what's going on. How do you know that I'm about to go buy weed now? Like that's, that's a little scary, but there's always this insistence. I wrote every single research paper in high school on either. I wrote three research papers in high school, medical marijuana, um, uh, on, uh, and then on re- regular marijuana and on prostitution. Um, those are the three, three papers I wrote in high school. I was, I, I believe like I was just blatantly myself like and there was a certain like game i was playing of like if i could be if i could be open about my pot smoking all my friends parents know it all of my friends know like like the certain and they still i'm the kid who sits and talks with my friends parents for the extra hours after the meal when everybody else runs downstairs like that was always like you could see me and i was like i can use not abuse use you have you drink alcohol, you watch TV, you go on vacation, you do all these things to escape. I'm I'm never going to do it in order to escape. I actually like really consciously, I'm not like if I'm feeling bad, I won't smoke weed. I'll only smoke weed for fun. So for me, the litmus test is, am I enhancing my reality or am I escaping from my reality? And it's very hard sometimes to make a distinction between the two. But like you said, there's, there, well, there's certain... Maybe enhancing is a confusing word. If you said, um, if if your focus is everything you're doing, you're disconnecting from one thing and connecting to something else, right? Like, just like you said about your wife, is is, mar- is marriage or, is marriage a connection or a disconnection? You said it. I'm connecting to my wife. I'm disconnecting from the rest of the world. You know, I heard this from someone in Hebrew. The same um, two words come from the same root word. One is karov, which means to come close to something, and korban, which means to sacrifice something. To come close to one thing is to sacrifice something else. So the question is, is the focus on the connection to, or is the fo- or, or is it on the disconnection from? Mm-hmm. So when, when someone's doing a mushroom trip, is it, I'm not feeling great today, I want to disconnect from this, and I'm going to use... Um, psychedelic mushrooms to disconnect from my reality so the focus is on disconnection it's the dumbest idea ever to 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 choose mushrooms to disconnect because you almost like like in the it's scary because you can't you end up being faced with all your demons if you're trying to run away it could be it could be and it depends on the dosages it could be be, it can't be there are many people who use it recreationally LSD, many people use it recreationally. There are certain ones like ayahuasca. I've never heard of anyone who uses it recreationally. But those, the focus is on a connection. So you say, I'm looking to connect to myself better, to connect to the world better, to understand more, to know more, to experience more, that the focus is on the connection. And that's same thing, but that's a difference, right? Same idea. Sex with my wife, what is that about? It's about connection with her. Sex with a prostitute, what is it about? There's a reason it's a prostitute. It's someone who's like, it's not about her. It could be kind of connected to her, but the focus is on the disconnection from self. I want to escape myself. I want to escape my reality. So I'm going to go in that direction. And that's, that may be an easier way because just to use enhance enhances so it's going to enhance of course many things are going to enhance mushrooms are going to enhance your experience every day of the week but if you say is am i driving towards connecting with something when you married your wife you didn't say i'm disconnecting from the rest of the world 
You said, I'm connecting. And maybe this is the same with asceticism. If you're going, what's the difference between isolation and meditation? One is I'm running away from everyone, and the other is I'm going, in, I'm going in, going into myself, connecting with it. What is the, the Hebrew word, kavana, right? What is the intention? What's the direction? Where are you, where are you pointing towards? And you're facing up, and always be facing up, uh, and surround myself focused. by I people. I say the same thing. Go ahead. Yeah, just and making, like, doing best to surround myself by people that, like, are okay with me facing up. Like, there are, there are people who include, and sometimes even the people closest to us who, they're scared of you going up because they feel like they might get left behind because of their own issues. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Spouses all the time are extremely nervous. My, my wife was very, very nervous. So I'll tell you today, I'm not sharing the, the secret. She was very, very nervous um, when I began exploring psychedelics. And she kept saying, um, I'm afraid you're going to leave me. I'm afraid you're going to leave me. How right she was. How right she was. There was only one difference. I invited her to come with me also. <laughs> right? Meaning I did. Like, and I left myself also. The place I was in then was someone who was incompatible with the person I am now, which means the person I was, I am now is incompatible with the person she was then. And you think if you had, did you go through it separately before you went through it with her or? Yes. And so yes. did you, when you had gone through it, did you feel incompatible with her in that interim? It created instant, immediately it created a very strong connection between us. Because it was an understanding, it was perspective shift. A lot of the things that she was frustrated with me, with me was frustrated um, with me about. I was able to recognize. And the first experiences, she was like, "Wow, I love this version of you." But as it continued, there was a sense, she was nervous each time. But as it continued, it became very scary for her and said, "Where's my, where's my husband going?" And it became somewhat incompatible it did we were incompatible for a time it put a tremendous amount of friction on our relationship and then that was a choice for hers does she want to does she want to join or not fortunately she has and now that she has i see the same thing happening to her there are relationships in her life not people she's married to but there are relationships in her life that um people are going to have to make a choice it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be through psychedelics it doesn't I know people who are continuously growing without that breath work or deep meditation or a certain kind of learning, experiential learning, right? It's not just knowledge. Um, and they're able to, to grow and expand in that way. But if someone is not on that path, it becomes very, very, very difficult. When I got into recovery, I cut off all of my friends. Some chose to hop on board and then our relationship became even stronger and some chose not to. And, have a very difficult time speaking to them. So it's a very real fear. That my wife feels, where are you going? Well, I mean, not not just with psychedelics, like this, like, I don't know, hopefully it's not just a manic episode, you know what I mean, of, of how good I'm doing this past month. Um, but even within this past month, there was the highs and the lows. Like the other Thursday, the other three days ago, last Thursday night, I had one of the greatest evenings of my life of, feeling connected, shining. I went to a friend's party and like it was, it was a Febrangan party combo type thing. 
And I remember I came home and on my walk home, I sent my wife a voice note of how just like how awesome the night was. And I came home, she woke up, it was like one in the morning and she woke up and we were talking and I just let her know how amazing the night was. And there was this immediate like response from her of like, okay, great. And then like, she needed to share with me the sadness she felt that I didn't bring her there. Um, and like, and, and to me with my traumas, it almost like, why are you trying to pull me down? And it, it, I had these, that's what, you felt like. that's what I felt like. And I, it, I had the worst, most intense like breakdown I've ever had. Like in one day, like that I've, I've had ever like rage of anger of, of insanity. Like, like, like I, I like grab my, like, like I it was in bed lying down. Like, you're not hearing me. I feel like I'm being gaslit. Like, do you not hear that? I might feel it to be that way. Like that it, when you, when you insist on letting me know how bad you're feeling right now, after I just told you how great of a night I have. So it was really intense. And then we like, it was a release. And then the next night, Friday night went out together and I brought her with me to the same person's house, same kind of group of people. And uh, like, I don't know, it was just, it was a crazy high and crazy low and I didn't escape in anywhere. I just felt all of it. And it was I don't know, re- reflecting on what you, what you said about your wife, that feeling of where are you going? It's a real fear because it makes sense. For sure. Um, and, and it's going to have to be tested, right? Because if, if this change in me and that's what she's doing and that's what my wife did to me, if, if she's going to come along for the ride, she has to know that I'm on the ride. I'm not going to get blown off by the next wind. I'm not going to get blown off by her mood or her comments or anything else. Mm-hmm. Because then what, what is there to join? There's no security in this. It's quite literally a manic episode. Right. What makes an episode manic? That it goes down. If someone's in a good mood perpetually, it's not a manic episode. The mania is that it's doing this. Right? It's but the isn't it always it's doing that? You like Is there a state, you feel like you've been in a place you, where you, there's yes. like a lateral growth? Like, a lateral, you know, vertical lateral growth? growth. You know, I've, usually, I've, I've literally used this analogy that in... In addiction, one of the hallmarks of it is the peaks are high and the valleys are low. So it's looking like this. And in recovery, we give up the peaks for the valleys. So it kind of looks more like this, like a steady state. My, my great moods are, let's say, let's say in, in terms of intensity level, a peak in addiction looks like a, on a scale of 10 can look like eights and tens regularly. I went out all night, I was partying, I was yelling, I was screaming, I was jumping, I was arms around people, whatever it is, right? This very intense, call it joyful experience. And, and sex, a very intense orgasmic experience. And then feeling this incredibly low, incredible low. Now I'm down in those numbers of seven, eight, nine, and 10. Whereas, it doesn't mean good. Good is not the same as intensity. It doesn't mean joyful. It just means intensity. So that through, through the recovery process, it becomes more in, intensity start hitting twos above and twos below, right? So on my worst day, I don't look noticeably different than on my best day. I feel something different, but it's not this incredible dejection or this incredible elation. And imagine coming home to your kids and one day they see someone at this level and the next day at that level. Right. Either one of those may be okay with consistency, but they're not okay with the volatility and that's what the healing and recovery process will bring and the wife and those around you want to know is this for real 
are you serious about this? You're about to drag me on this journey. Can you withstand a punch? Mm-hmm. And that's what she did. She threw something at you. I feel like shit. And you showed her. It's a manic episode. Right. But then the next day you rebounded and said, okay, listen, I may go off for a day, but I'm right back on. And that's the process. And eventually it becomes a little bit tighter. And then once she knows, hey, this is solid, this guy's not standing on, on clouds, then she knows I can join him there. He's created a landing for me that I can stand on. There's something safe here. She's not going to want to. My wife waited two years before she, uh, she joined me. She needed to know it was solid and she needed for me to go through some of that you know, fitting on is this, it does different things to different people. Are you saying you're never going to work a day in your life again? Are you going to go running to Bali and to meditate all day? You know, what does this, what does this mean? And it's changed, right? The way I communicate now and the things I do and the way I spend a lot of my time is heavily influenced by my journeys for Mm -hmm. sure. But there's a certain stability within that that she felt comfortable with and said, okay, I can join him. I see where this is going. I'm clear on, on the picture he's painting. Right. But that took a couple of years and there was a lot of fear and, and tests in the process. And being able to communicate the picture you're painting, like to, to paint a picture beautiful enough that she could recognize it too. Like, what is, the be- what is the straight path that a man should go on? Is that which is beautiful in his eyes and in the eyes of the other. Um, and to be like, I, it's like, like that need to communicate a beautiful vision of where it's going. Like, and, and one that she can sign up for because that's up to me. And so to the degree of which I think this I is felt, what it means. Yeah. And what so do you it mean? means for a man to lead the woman. For like when the man is like playing that role of the masculine and leading a woman, this is what it is. But I need to know that your journey has stability. They for women it's very important. There has to be stability, be security for themselves, for their kids. They can't have the ups and downs. There's they a can't withstand it. It's making me and think they of right? If someone's yeah. if someone has to take care of a six month old, they cannot. Right. Why, why it would be completely irresponsible to live a teenage life. Another good Nietzsche quote that I think will put a lot of this in perspective. Um, what if pleasure and displeasure were so tied together that whatever that whoever wanted to have as much as possible, one must have as much as possible of the other. That whatever that whoever wanted to learn to jubilate to the heavens would also have to be prepared for depression unto death. And then the button comments on it. Um, another philosopher, um, the, the most fulfilling human, the most fulfilling human projects appeared inseparable from a degree of torment. The source of our greatest joys lying awkwardly close to the, those of our greatest pains. We suffer yeah. because we, we cannot spontaneously master the ingredients of fulfillment. Yeah, I think it's very, very much what we're saying. So, all right, keep thinking aloud. Thank you for for joining. A really big honor. I admire what you're doing. Keep doing it. Um, Likewise, I'm sure we'll do it again.